Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. When Hal asked astronaut David Bowman to open the pod bay doors, it was as if our most primal fear of machines came rushing headlong into the 20th century. Today in our 21st century world, we understand the basics of the artificial intelligence behind Hal. We see it on display every day in our interactions with Siri and Alexa, our reliance on algorithms in flying our planes and soon our self-driving cars. It's the beginning of the blossoming of a brave new world. But in fact, AI is the internet of 1995. While it dominates every conversation about technology, commerce, the workplace, and the economy today, there's an awful lot we don't know and an awful lot of misinformation. Its impact can be felt in manufacturing, retail, healthcare, robotics, finance, and science, as well as defense and national security. The academic progress of AI is taking place every day in places like Stanford and Google and Amazon and Facebook. And the proverbial elephant in the room with respect to AI is always China and its deep, rich, and no-holds-barred commitment to be the world's leader. But nothing beats understanding AI's future by looking at how we got here and who are the people that made it happen. What were the underlying ideas and emotions that really portend its future? We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Cade Metz. Cade is a technology correspondent with the New York Times, covering artificial intelligence, driverless cars, robotics, virtual reality, and other emerging technologies. Previously, he was a senior staff writer with Wired, and it is my pleasure to welcome Cade Metz here to talk about his new book, Genius Makers, The Mavericks Who Brought AI to Google, Facebook, and the World. Cade, thanks so much for joining us. Glad to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. One of the things that we do with technology is we kind of look at it as as a thing unto itself, and we spend all this time talking about it and trying to understand it. One of the things that you do in Genius Makers with AI is really try and get behind the people that, that created it, that brought it to where it is today. Talk a little bit about that first. Yeah, that's what I, what I became fascinated with. You know, I've covered this technology um, over the past decade, and in covering the technology, I got to know these incredible people, um, uh, you know, some of whom have worked on these key, key ideas for decades, and their personal stories um, and the way their personal t- stories intertwined with each other um, not only began to fascinate me, fascinate me, but you you started to see uh, this incredible sweeping story over the past 50 years culminating in a lot of the advances that we're seeing now inside these big giant companies. Um, and that's that, that was really the seed of this book. And really in, in understanding it and how AI in particular has evolved, it's worth looking at how these notions of AI, how it evolved the way it is today, that really it, it's a product of human imagination. It certainly is, right? Um, you know, the, the book begins in, in 2012 with a key moment, but then it flashes back uh, to the 1950s um, when, you know, you, you had a group of people who gathered at Dartmouth University um, uh, and, and coined that term artificial intelligence, right? And they had these, these grand notions of what that would be. And you see that in the name, right? Just the, just the term artificial intelligence, um, you know, it's such, you know, it's such a grandiose choice. Um, and, 
you know, that's that's good and it's bad, right? You you see this uh, desire um, in in so many people to build technology that can behave like the human brain, right? And you have to admire that. Um, but at the same time, um, they're over optimistic, right? They're over, they were over optimistic in, in the fifties. They're over optimistic now in many ways that can be misleading. And, and anytime you have that extreme ambition, um, sometimes you're blind to the flaws in the technology as well. And that's something we're dealing with as a society right now. One of the things that, that seems unique, I guess, to AI as opposed to other areas of technology and to the point that you were just making is that it seems to – while there's great ambition, it seems to be moving at a slower pace than people would like, people in the industry would like. And there are just certain realities built in that can't seem to be overcome. It's true, right? And again, it's – you know, when in thinking about this, it's, it's a real balancing act, right? Over the past decade, we, we have seen huge progress. Right? There's, this, there's this one basic idea from the 50s. It's called a neural network. And it can literally learn skills on its own. So the best example I like to give is if you give a neural network, a neural network is just a mathematical system. If you give a neural network thousands of cat photos, it can learn to recognize a cat. It identifies the patterns in those photos that define what a cat looks like. And that, that idea started to work around, around 2012, um, you know, in, in that moment I described when, the book, when my book begins. Um, but th- that same idea uh, is used to recognize the spoken word now. So when you speak into Alexa or Siri, uh, which you mentioned, that's how they recognize spoken words. It's a neural network that has trained on thousands of hours of spoken words and recognized the patterns in the words that you and I use. That same idea uh, is essential to self-driving cars. Um, That's how they recognize pedestrians on the road or street signs or street markings. But, you know, at the same time, these technologies, while, while very impressive and very useful in so many ways, are still flawed. You know, I, I do not walk outside the front door of my home in Berkeley, California, and see self-driving cars everywhere. You know, they're good at recognizing those pedestrians, but they're not necessarily good at dealing with all the uncertainty and the chaos in the world that you and I deal with by second nature. They're not good at dealing with those surprising events that happen only every so often. We're still struggling um, to build machines that can do that. And that's why self-driving cars are not on the road. So there's been progress, but maybe not as much progress as people think. The other aspect of it is that when you peel away all the layers of, of just kind of the sexiness of technology, it really comes down to just huge mountains of data and lots of processing power. You're exactly right. And that's why it took so long for that idea of a neural network to work. You know, by 2012, we had those two things. The internet gave us the data, um, all the images and all the text, um, as well as the sounds that we needed to train these systems. But to train them, you also need that computing power. And we're talking about massive amounts of computing power, not just in a single machine like your laptop, 
but machines spread across giant data centers that now spend, I mean, literally months, you know, analyzing this data and and um, and looking for those patterns that allows it uh, to do these particular tasks. When we look at the way AI has evolved today, could it have gone another route? Is there another way that it that it could have developed? And are there people looking at that still today? Absolutely, the, the AI field is not you know it's not a monolithic thing. It's you know, people have talked about it as a group of tribes, and each tribe believes in a different idea. And you know there was a there was a tribe that they're often called the connectionists. They believed in this neural network idea, which is bearing fruit right now. But there are others who believed um, in very different ideas. Um, you know, one group is called the the, um, the symbolists, and they believed in what's called uh, symbolic AI. And, and basically, that's when you put a bunch of engineers in a room and they define the way the AI is going to work. They, you know, line of code uh, by line of code, rule by rule, they define what a cat looks like. Um, you know, that in some ways, that idea has been superseded by the neural network. The neural network can reach, uh, you know, points uh, that, that symbolic AI cannot because it learns on its own. But a neural network is, is still limited, right? Uh, like we talked about, it works in some areas that not others. And so, so many scientists are now looking, you know, at those other ideas to try to fill the gaps um, and try to build systems that that can do things a neural network can't do, and to deal with this, you know, this data and computing problem. Like we need so much data and so much computing um, that that it's not ideal, right? We want systems that can learn these skills in simpler ways, or at least in quicker ways. It relates to this idea of of deep learning. Talk about that with respect to AI. Right. So deep learning. Is, is another term um, for a neural network. Um, and it, it's interesting how these, these terms will evolve and, um, and replace each other over the decades, this, depending on you know, who's doing the talking and, um, and what's working. Sometimes you, know, you need a name to really take hold, and that's what happened um, with, uh, with the neural networks. You know, the central character in my book is a is a guy named Jeffrey Hinton, and he was born in London, ended up um, in the U.S. and eventually moved to Canada. He's he's at the University of Toronto and 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 works for Google now. Um, but he he coined that term deep learning, and he was he was consciously looking for something that would grab people's attention. Right, this neural network idea, which he had worked on since the early 70s, was out of favor. No one, almost no one, uh, even in the airfield, believed in this idea. And so one of the things he was trying to do was to draw more attention to it and to kind of, you know, restart things. And, and he settled on this, this, this term, deep learning. He used it in a, in a speech um, uh, at, at a big AI conference. And that is part of what happened, right? It, it, it needed a rebranding, so to speak, um, because it really was a dead idea uh, until he and, and, and a small group of other people showed that it could work and brought it to people's attention. One of the things that, that's so interesting is, is kind of the difference, the gaps between the fantasy of this kind of 
AGI or artificial general intelligence and the way it, it kind of works today, which is really very individually task-driven. This is a great point, and that's one of the things I want to show in the book, in that you know, I want to show where the technology is working now. We've talked about a lot of those ways. Um, but at the same time, many of the scientists building this technology will tell you that, that that's what they're working on. They're working on AGI, artificial general intelligence, a machine that can do anything the human brain can do. And what people need to understand is that they don't know how to get there yet, right? That is their stated goal. It certainly motivates them. But that is something that is still very much in the future. Uh, even they don't know how to get there. Um, and we can, we can dream about that. We can talk about that. And we do as a society, right, in science fiction novels and, and sci-fi movies. Uh, we're all familiar with that. Um, and it's fun to think about, um, but that's not something that is necessarily around the corner. Um, it's something far more complex uh, than what we have today. Talk about the areas that, that are really being focused on today. We all, we all know about self-driving cars. Beyond that, there are so many other areas that, that companies and, and individuals are trying to make AI work for. Talk a little about that. The one key area that that I'm focused on, you know, as a reporter at the Times at the moment, and this and this is a big part of the book as well, are these systems that can learn uh, the nuances uh, of of natural language. So learn the nuances of English, and these systems work in the same way. They're essentially giant neural networks, and they analyze vast amounts of text. So thousands of, of books, digital books, uh, thousands of Wikipedia articles, um, all sorts of other content from the Internet. They spend literally months um, analyzing this text, and they learn the patterns that define the English language. And then once they learn that, they can be applied to so many tasks. For instance, you know, these these systems, they're, 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 they're called language models. One prime example is is what's called GPT-3, built by uh, a lab called OpenAI, which was founded um, among others by, among others, Elon Musk. This system, it can help drive a search engine uh, like Google. It can, it, and in that case, it helps understand what you're asking and helps give it to you. But it can also um, generate its own text. Uh, it can generate its own tweets. It can generate blog posts. It can generate entire articles. And in some cases, it does so in a perfect way. Um, the punctuation is perfect. It is, it is English as you and I know it, and, it, and you can't distinguish it um, from English that you and I would write. Now, it's still flawed. You know, if, if you spin the dial 10 times, so to speak, it'll give you five examples that are perfect. Um, but it'll also give you five that are not. And so we're not to the point where it does it 100% of the time. Um, but one example I often give, because I've used th this system quite a bit, is you could say, ask it to give you a speech in the voice of Donald Trump. And, you know, five times out of ten, it will give you a speech 
that will have have your your jaw on the floor because it sounds so much uh, like a Donald Trump speech. That's a remarkable thing, and and it has implications across not only the tech industry but our our daily lives. Um, it's going to affect so many different different technologies, um, and there are a lot of worries about it as well. Which is what I want to talk about next, the worries in terms of, of things like deep fakes, which, which goes to a little bit to what you were talking about w- regarding speech, and also the weaponization of it. Y- yes. I mean, y- you're, you're right. So deep fakes is a great example, and it plays right into what I was talking about, right? It's, these systems, they cannot just generate their own images. Um, so... Uh, still images as well as video, but they can generate their own text. And what that means is, is they can generate disinformation. And that is, a, in my mind, a huge, huge concern. Anyone who's lived over the past four years knows how dangerous disinformation, particularly online, can be. And we're reaching a point where machines can generate that at a volume that humans couldn't, right? At a price, a low price that humans couldn't. And the worry is that we're going to reach the point where you just can't trust anything that you see uh, or read. Uh, We might have to, and a lot of people really, really worry about this. We might reach the point where we have to change the way we view anything we look at. And we might have to realize that it that it might not be real that's a scary thought the the other part and the other danger out there that that raises ethical issues is is the weaponization of this i mean this is what kind of created a huge problem for google a couple of years ago it did um and 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 again it's the same technology being used in a different way so the technology that allows a self-driving car uh, to drive on its own also allows a drone to fly on its own. And there are companies, uh, startups, um, who are building these self-flying drones, and they are building them explicitly for the military. And they're willing to say, you know, that we, if we will put weapons on these, right? Um, that, that is fundamentally an autonomous weapon um, which people have, have worried about uh, for so long. Um, this is going to happen, right? It, it's happening abroad, um, so it's going to happen here in the United States. Um, and it, it's, it's something that we, we are still struggling to understand, uh, how to regulate, so to speak. Um, if, if we're going to ban these sorts of things, um, it's going to have to be a global ban, right? Um, uh, you can't say we're not going to do this in the U.S. because our rivals will certainly build it. Uh, and so there is this very real arms race uh, that is only just beginning to happen, um, and it's something we need to think about. Like, at what point um, is a human in the loop, and at what point is a human not? Right? We we need to think long and hard about these questions. And and to your point about this being global, China has made a huge commitment to AI, something akin to a space program. I mean, just huge amounts of money that they're throwing at it. Talk a little about that. No, it's, it's, it's true. And, you know, my, my book begins at this key moment in 2012, you know, where this idea of a neural network starts to work. And, um, uh, and you know, suddenly these, these giant companies 
realize it and, and they make a play for the few people who are working this idea. And one of the companies involved at that moment, that early moment, is Baidu, which is one of the biggest uh, tech companies in China. You know, China has been involved in this um, for a long time. And you're right, they're completely committed uh, to pushing this forward. And some argue that they have a real advantage because they have a huge population, right? A huge population not only generates, you know, lots of talented AI researchers in the long term, it generates lots of data. And the data here is is so important. Um, and and certainly, you know, China is, is a rival. Um, and there's a lot of concern in the U.S. that the U.S. is not keeping pace. Um, but there's a lot of people, you know, thinking about how to deal with this. The concern is that all the data and the processing power and the talent is inside uh, commercial companies, right? Inside Google and, and Facebook, and it's not inside the Department of Defense, for instance. Um, but Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google, um, you know, just uh, presented um, you know, a game plan, so to speak, to um, uh, you know to the president, to Congress, um, that sort of lays out where the U.S. should go, um, you know, with an eye on, on its rivals. Um, so this this is something that that a lot of people are concerned about, but also a lot of people are, are trying to deal with. There was the story, as I was mentioning several years ago, when Google tried to do a project with the Department of Defense, the Google employees were up in arms about it. Right, and that's part of the concern here, right? So the you know that you know Google started working with the DoD. And there were people at the company, you know, who did not like the idea. And they they didn't like that what they were building was being used in that way. Um, and Google ended up pulling out of, of the project. Um, uh, and, and that raised a lot of concerns, um, you know, within the DOD, for instance, and within parts of government. There are two sides to this, right? Um, you have people who... Who, who don't want this to happen, um, but then you have uh, others on the other side of it who really do. Um, and inside the companies, there's a real push and pull. Um, and, and that's why people like Eric Schmidt are so concerned. They want to find ways of developing the talent um, outside of those companies um, and, and getting the technology into government and not just leave it to the big companies to build it. Mm -hmm. Has there been any progress in that regard in terms of of government money pushing forward on this? There's been a little bit. Like, you know, part of it is that the the Department of Defense was not really set up to work with companies like Google or startups in Silicon Valley. They're designed to work with these traditional defense contractors, right, like Raytheon or Booz Allen, um, and they don't really know how to work with these tech companies, but there's been a lot of effort to change that, and they, they now have new organizations that are that are meant to um, to liaise with, with the Googles and the startups of the world, and you're starting to see that, right? I talked about those, those you know, self flying drone companies, right? Those are all startups um, for the most part. And, um, and, and they are working with the DOD. The DOD is interested. There's, there's a lot of back and forth there that you didn't really see in the past. 
It's interesting that there was the model so many years ago vis-a-vis the Internet with things like DARPA that, that arguably kind of could have set the stage for this kind of collaboration. You bring up a great point, right? Amidst that controversy at Google where they worked on you know that, that project, which is called Project Maven, Maven. There, was, there was this uproar. And, um, and sort of the storyline was is that Silicon Valley was opposed to working with the government. And the irony there is that Silicon Valley was built on government right. money. It was built on Department of Defense money. The Internet was built on the on Department of Defense money. What you've seen is that just recently there's more of a concern about this in Silicon Valley. And a lot of that, um, you know, is about, you know, the Edward Snowden incident where, you know, this CIA, um, uh, uh, you know, ex-CIA analyst uh, revealed that uh, there were efforts to spy on the American public through these companies, right? Um, you know, through the, tech, the technological infrastructure of companies like Google. And so a lot of the, the people working at Google developed um, a new skepticism, a new disdain in some cases for for government work, and that's part of what's going on there. So it's it, again, it's more complicated than than people might think. And finally, in, in the time we have left, talk a little bit about the the individuals today. I mean, Silicon Valley is is no different than any place else in that it has its its star systems and its celebrity culture. We certainly see that every day playing out with respect to people like Elon Musk and and in the social media world. Who are the people to be watching? in the AI field today? Well, I mean, Elon Musk is certainly one. He's, he's a character in, in my book. Um, uh, and, you know, people you know, know, know a lot about him. And, and he is, you know, he is someone who um, uh, soaks up a lot of the attention. Um, but my book looks at these other creators um, uh, and, you know, who are more influential when it comes to these technologies. Um, you know, we talked about uh, Jeff Hinton, who's at Google, um, is a key player here. Um, but Elon Musk has actually stepped away uh, from OpenAI, this AI lab he created. And now it's being run by a guy named Sam Altman, um, who is a younger Silicon Valley player. And he's, um, you know, very much, you know, pulling the strings there. And, um, has brought in some serious talent to that lab, um, you know, from places uh, like Google. Uh, one of Jeff Hinton's um, former students, uh, Ilya Sutskever, you know, is is one of the leaders of that lab. Um, you know, the, the the landscape there is different than than people might think, um, and and that's what my book aims to chronicle. Cade Metz. The book is Genius Makers, The Mavericks Who Brought AI to Google, Facebook, and the World. Kate, I thank you so much for spending time with us. It was great fun. Thank you. Thank you.